Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about the civilizations of the ancient Americans. You know, the ones that American history books never talk about. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnhart. I've been an archaeologist, an explorer, and a seeker of esoteric knowledge all over the planet for over 30 years now. In this podcast, I'll share what I've learned. Sometimes it'll be stories of my adventures. Other times, it'll be things I've learned along the way. It'll be whatever I feel like talking about because this is my podcast, Beholden to No One. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Season 5, Episode 4, Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan, in my opinion, was the most important city in ancient Mesoamerican history. If Mesoamerica ever had a city comparable to Rome, Teotihuacan was it. Just like Rome, first it grew to a size that dwarfed its neighbors, then it expanded its control far and wide, and finally it was burned, probably by its own citizens. And interestingly, the two cities existed at the same time. Now, I'm not saying they met. I'm just saying they were coexistent for centuries. Thanks to over 200 years of archaeology, we know a lot about Teotihuacan. But that being said, there's still a lot we don't understand. And that's not necessarily weird. In fact, it's kind of par for the course for archaeology. No other field of scientific study can collect so many facts and still have no idea what they all mean. Theories on Teotihuacan? We have a ton of those. Agreed upon understandings about who they were, what they did, and why? Those are few and far between. Instead, we have a whole lot of debates. Even the name Teotihuacan is debated. It's definitely a Nahuatl word given to us from the Aztecs, but its exact translation is debated. Teo definitely means gods, and Akan means place, but it's that middle Tiwa that linguists aren't sure about. Place of the gods, birthplace of the gods, place where men became gods, there's really no consensus. Even how to pronounce Teotihuacan is debated. I say Teotihuacan and will continue to do so. But if it's a Nahuatl word, that means the emphasis should be on the second to last syllable. So, Teotihuacan. To prepare for this episode, I tried to Google its proper pronunciation, only to find big variations even among Nahuatl speakers. So, forget it. I'll just run with my English version, Teotihuacan. Anyhow, the subject of Teotihuacan could fill an entire college semester, but I've only got about 30 minutes. So, as I'm wont to do, I'll cover the topics that most interest me. Apologies if I fail to mention some of them that most interest you. I'm going to start off with some basic history of the city itself. Then part two will be its effect on wider Mesoamerica, and part three will be life within the city until its final destruction. So first, a Cliff Notes version of Teotihuacan's history. Teotihuacan is located about 50 kilometers northeast of Mexico City, in a northern pocket of the larger Valley of Mexico. 
It started as a small farming community by at least 600 BCE, but probably even earlier. By 150 BCE, the construction of big civic buildings and a formal street began. By 250 CE, they had three massive pyramids and a four-kilometer main street we call the Avenue of the Dead. Around that time, the city completely shifted its building efforts. No more work on civil buildings. Instead, they expanded the gridded road system and built massive apartment compounds, ones that housed 50 to 150 people each. By the city's end, there were more than 2,000 of those compounds. After 250 CE, they began expanding their influence outward in virtually every direction. We see that expansion in two main ways. Teotihuacan-style architecture in foreign civic centers and Teotihuacan pottery in the tombs of their elites. A third, and not uncommon, way is through public art adopting Teotihuacan iconography. To the south, they made their way through the Zapotecs and Mixtecs of Oaxaca, and then to every corner of the Maya world. To the east, they built relationships up and down the Veracruz coast. To the west, their influence reached up into the mountains of Michoacan and down to the Pacific Coast Teochitlan communities. To the north, there was mostly desert for hundreds of kilometers. Nevertheless, they built Alta Vista right on the line of the Tropic of Cancer as their northernmost Teotihuacan outpost. It's hard to understand the complete nature of Teotihuacan's outward influence. But when they're depicted abroad, it's almost invariably in warrior's garb. That seems indicative of at least how the rest of Mesoamerica saw them, powerful and militarized. Then something catastrophic happened back at Teotihuacan itself. Around 550 CE, the elite housing compounds along the Avenue of the Dead were burned. Evidence points to an internal revolution, or perhaps just a fiery change of governance. The city continues to limp along until the 700s CE, but its influence abroad clearly wanes. By the 800s CE, the mass abandonments of Mesoamerican cities starts, and it's the end of what archaeologists refer to as the Classic Period. Many, myself included, believe the power vacuum left after the final fall of Teotihuacan was the core catalyst for that region-wide collapse. Okay, that's it for Teotihuacan cliff notes. Archaeoed's analytics say that many people stop listening at about this five-minute mark. So, for that segment of my audience, thanks for listening. For the rest of you, let's back up and take a deeper dive in. Teotihuacan was far from the first major city in Mesoamerica. That title is held by the Olmec city of San Lorenzo, which was thriving a thousand years earlier. There were also Zapotec cities like Monte Alban, and Maya cities like Nakbe and Aba Takalik, with large populations centuries before Teotihuacan. In the Valley of Mexico, the big player was a city called Quiquilco. 
Located just south of Lake Texcoco, Quiquilco built civic architecture and a huge circular platform mound by 600 BCE. That circular platform still exists, though now it's surrounded by the highways of southern Mexico City. The region's volcanic soils were ideal for intensive agriculture, and a food abundance allowed Quiquilco's population to reach 20,000 people by 150 BCE. Their only trouble was, where there are volcanic soils, there are also volcanoes. One of them blew around 150 BCE, covering the city in ash. They recovered and kept going, but it seems that a portion of their population moved north to Teotihuacan. Quiquilco transplants or not, Teotihuacan builds the first phase of the Pyramid of the Moon about that same time, certainly by 100 BCE. An important thing to note here is the burial found in that first phase. It contained 12 bound victims and a scatter of animal bones, probably all sacrifices. At this point in Mesoamerican history, that kind of human sacrifice is unheard of. The Olmecs didn't do it. The early Maya didn't do it. Monte Alban had their Donzante carvings by then, which might be depicting mutilated captives, but they also might just be weird dancers. We're really not sure. And to my knowledge, no actual sacrificial victim graves were found at Monte Alban. But at Teotihuacan, human sacrifices are literally the foundation of their first pyramid. The Pyramid of the Moon goes on to have seven major building phases, the last about 400 CE. No other structure at Teotihuacan had so many building phases, and four more burial chambers were interred within those subsequent phases, all four filled with more sacrifices. The next major construction was the Avenue of the Dead, which extended south from the front of the Pyramid of the Moon at an angle of 15.5 degrees off cardinal directions. Teotihuacan's other two pyramids, the Sun and the Feathered Serpent, were built on the east side of the avenue, but not until about 150 CE. The Temple of the Sun was built in just two phases, and we know surprisingly little about what's inside. It was poorly reconstructed by Leopoldo Batres, who in 1905 was appointed by Porfirio Diaz to have it ready for a 1910 100th anniversary of Mexican independence from Spain. Batres didn't excavate into its interior, and in his defense, he barely had time to rebuild it by 1910. His big error was assuming that it came to a point like Egyptian pyramids. When he ran out of building on top, he just made a stubby little top terrace and called it done. A hundred years later, Ina archaeologist opened up Batre's top terrace, finding stub walls of superstructures and a massive basalt statue they concluded was the Aztec god of fire. Despite Batre's mistakes, the building was simply too large for him to really screw it up. Still at 75 meters tall and 225 meters per side at its base, it's the third largest pyramid in the world. 
The Temple of the Feathered Serpent is the third largest pyramid at Teotihuacan. And frankly, it's much more interesting than the Pyramid of the Sun. Its architecture is an elegant example of Teotihuacan's classic Talud Tablero style, and its terrace facades are full of elaborate stone carvings. The same scene repeats on all the terraces. It's two snake creatures, undulating and entwining on a watery background full of shells and other aquatic symbols. One snake has a feathered body and a feathery mane behind its fanged face. He is probably the Mesoamerican deity Quetzalcoatl. The other's face is covered by a mosaic mask, or perhaps it's a helmet. Its eyes are like two donuts, the goggled eyes of the well-known rain god Tlaloc. The tails of the snakes end in rattles, and as far as we know, Quetzalcoatl is not a rattlesnake. So it's confusing and debated. Who were these snakes, and what do these scenes mean? If they are Quetzalcoatl and Tlaloc, then they're Mesoamerica's first depictions of those two deities. Now, there's debate on whether the Olmec depicted Quetzalcoatl once at La Venta, and there's a Tlaloc image on a vase at Tlapacoya, but the Temple of Quetzalcoatl is really the first clear depictions carved into the side of a temple, no less. The serpent with the mosaic masks is the subject of greatest debate. Most agree that it's not Tlaloc himself. It's a creature wearing a mask with his characteristic goggle eyes and fangs. Talbay and Miller call him the War Serpent. Coe suggested Fire Serpent. Honestly, I'm not sure where they got either of those names from, but it, they do sound cool. Personally, I wonder if they're not both Quetzalcoatl, with one either in the guise of Tlaloc or somehow conflating with him. But ask ten archaeologists and you'll get ten different answers. There is no consensus, or even a majority opinion, I can point to in this case. What was found inside the temple does favor Talby and Miller's war symbolism hypothesis. Over 200 burials have been found inside. Some guess there were a total of 260 burials, but we don't really know that for sure. There are others that count 260 total snake heads on the temple's exterior, but that too really can't be confirmed because the building is partially destroyed. Spatially, it might work out, but we don't know that. Both counts seek to connect them to the sacred 260-day calendar. But strangely, not a single depiction of the 260-day calendar exists at Teotihuacan. And that makes those theorized counts seem a bit of a stretch. However many there are, the burials inside the Temple of the Feathered Serpent have been called sacrifices. But that actually seems strange to me. For one thing, they're both men and women. Across time and space in Mesoamerica, the vast majority of sacrificed people are male, rarely female. Another is the position of the bodies. Most are stretched out with care, no signs of having their hands bound like the sacrifices found in the Pyramid of the Moon. The strongest point against thinking that their sacrifices are the objects found with them. Around each male body were weapons, 
and around their necks were macabre necklaces made out of human lower mandibles. Were those the mandibles of enemies they defeated in battle? Actually, some of the mandible necklaces were fakes. They were made of shell and bone, not really human mandibles. And I think that's kind of funny. To me, it says, Into all cultures and all generations, posers are born. But fake jewelry or not, these guys were warriors who were buried with respect. Sacrifices are bound and thrown in, not buried with their weapons and badass necklaces. The question on my mind becomes, who were these guys fighting? They were interred before 200 CE, which is before Teotihuacan's expansion began. Again, theories abound, but there's good archaeological evidence to say that it was Coquilco that they were fighting with. Coquilco, despite the volcanic ash episode at 150 BCE, was still a city of 20,000 people and probably the dominant force in the Valley of Mexico. Teotihuacan, obviously bellicose from the content of its burials, wasn't much bigger at the time, but likely fighting for valley supremacy. But then another major eruption happened, right around 250 CE, covering Quiquilco with lava, and no doubt making its population flee and disperse. And just then... About 250 CE, Teotihuacan's population surged and their building priorities changed. They stopped building pyramids and started building apartment compounds, perhaps to house Quiquilco's refugees. The front face of the Temple of the Feathered Serpent was covered by an undecorated platform called the Adosada. That strange move is another important and unsolved Teotihuacan mystery. If they didn't like what the temple stood for anymore, why wouldn't they just destroy it? Instead, they only partially hid it and let it remain standing for the rest of the city's history. Stranger still, the Tlaloc iconography on that temple became the symbol of Teotihuacan for the rest of the Mesoamerican world. Okay, I'll take my long overdue first commercial break here. When I return, we'll talk about Teotihuacan's impressive expansion outward. Hey folks, it's still me, Ed. One of these days I'll attract some commercial revenue, but until then, I'll just keep plugging my own stuff. I love the ancient Maya calendar. I love to learn about it, and I love to teach about it. As part of my teaching mission, I create an annual wall calendar that correlates the Maya calendar with the Christian Gregorian calendar. It functions just like a normal wall calendar, with 12 months and all the Western holidays displayed. But it also tells you what day it is in the ancient Maya calendar, the Solkim, the Hob, and the Long Count Cycles. The photos for each month are beautiful windows into the ruins of the Maya world, taken by the 12 winners of our annual photo contest. The 2024 Mayan calendar is available for purchase now at my website, mayan-calendar.com. That website also contains a lot of interesting information about ancient Maya calendrical cycles. So even if you don't want a wall calendar, you'll probably like the website. Again, 
mayan-calendar.com. That's Mayan with an N-symbol-calendar.com. As I was saying before the break, something radical happened at Teotihuacan around 250 CE. Work on the pyramids virtually ended. Instead, the city focused on expanding their street grid and building big apartment compounds. The Temple of the Feathered Serpent's front facade was covered and a massive enclosed plaza was built around it. We call that the Ciudadela. The Pyramid of the Moon is the only pyramid that continues to grow, with phases 5 through 7 occurring between 250 and 500 CE. Four of the five burial chambers found inside the moon also go in at that time. All appear to be sacrifices. There are older men who are bound but covered in jewelry. Strontium studies say that they're foreigners, not from Teotihuacan itself. So maybe they were high-ranking lords brought to Teotihuacan for sacrifice? It's hard to know for sure. There are also burials full of severed heads. Burial number four had 17 human heads, and burial number three had 18 heads of various animals. Wolves, pumas, hawks. One was even a jaguar. The bound and foreign sacrifices found in the moon neatly correlate to the city's expansion phase. It's tempting to take them as proof that Teotihuacan's expansion was militaristic, but corroborating evidence in wider Mesoamerica is hard to come by. Sure, there's lots of Teotihuacan war imagery in the Maya area, but physical evidence of an invading army is nowhere to be found. And sure, maybe it's out there and we just haven't found it yet. But war tends to leave a big footprint behind. For example, we have tons of evidence of the Maya Wars that started in the mid-500 CE, both in excavations and hieroglyphic references. No such evidence accompanies the arrival of the Teotihuacanos. In fact, it's presented in Maya art as fairly amiable. But hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. Before Teotihuacan arrived to the Maya world, it had to carve a path through the Zapotec and Mixtec territories. It could just be a skewed perspective created by where archaeologists prefer to dig, but Teotihuacan's influence seems to have focused on the major capitals and the elites who ruled them. For the Zapotecs, that meant Monte Alban. By 200 CE, they had a population of 18,000 people and economic control of the entire valley of Oaxaca. So they were doing pretty well for themselves. But when Teotihuacan shows up, perhaps around 250 CE, Monte Alban's wealth and power seem to grow exponentially. Its mountaintop center builds new temples, many of them with Teotihuacan's signature Tulud Tablero architecture. The elite tombs from that same time start including tripod vessels, also of known Teotihuacan origin. Perhaps most tellingly, Monte Alban's political control expands well beyond the Valley of Oaxaca. Much of that new dominance seems militaristic in nature. But here's the weird thing. Very little Teotihuacan influence can be found outside of Monte Alban. 
You might expect their Toulouse Tablero architecture to become popular, but it doesn't. You'd especially expect Zapotec communities to start having Teotihuacan exports, like their pottery types, and especially the green obsidian from their Pachuca mines. But beyond fine tripod vessels and elite tombs, that doesn't happen either. How and why would Teotihuacan have such a powerful influence on the elites that didn't also trickle down into the rest of Zapotec society? That same thing happened in the Maya world. Major regional capitals embraced Teotihuacan's arrival, but their actual footprint is not nearly as large as we would expect. There's evidence of Teotihuacan's presence everywhere in the Maya world, but mostly through subtle things like iconography on ceramics or in carved stone. The majority of our evidence comes from three Maya capital cities, Tikal, Copan, and Kaminalhuyu. Kaminalhuyu was the big city of the Guatemalan highlands. Actually, it still is. We just call it Guatemala City these days. It's quite clear that Teotihuacan was there. Buildings have Toulouse Tablero terracing, and tripod vessels are found in elite tombs. There are multiple books on the subject of Teotihuacan's presence in Kaminalhuyu, so I won't belabor the point here but I do want to mention two things. One, the largest section of Teotihuacan-style temples of Kaminalhuyu remains unexcavated and protected within a huge park in Guatemala's city's Zone 1. When and if that park is ever excavated, it's sure to teach us new things about Teotihuacan. Two, Kaminalhuyu was in control of huge obsidian resources. Most of the obsidian found in the ancient Maya cities came from Kaminalhuyu-controlled mines. But Teotihuacan also controlled vast obsidian resources. Obsidian workshops are all over their city. So they neither wanted Kaminalhuyu's obsidian, nor sought to trade their own. Again, what were they doing there? Now, our most dramatic evidence of Teotihuacan in the Maya world comes from Tikal. And that's because the Maya of Tikal wrote all about the meeting in hieroglyphic texts. Some of those texts came from a stone monument named El Marcador. It was found standing on a small Talud Tablero platform covered with the goggled eyes of Tlaloc, Teotihuacan's rain god. It tells of the arrival of two men from Teotihuacan, a war captain named Siakak and a prince named Nunyashine. Those names translate as Fireborn and First Crocodile. Totally badass names. They arrived on January 16, 378 CE. That same day, the king of Tikal entered the water, says the texts. That meant he died. And who replaces him? Prince Nun Yashin. The text goes on to explain that Yashin is the son of a man named Spear Thrower Owl. For decades, we didn't know who that was. But David Stewart finally made a strong argument for Spear Thrower Owl being the king of Teotihuacan. By the way, he's got a new book all about Spear Thrower Owl coming out next year. I'm excited, and I'm going to get a copy as soon as it comes out. But 
So unless we're wrong on our translations, which I doubt, Teotihuacan managed to take over Tikal's royal dynasty. From that new headquarters, this new Teotihuacan Tikal begins a military takeover of their neighbors. It's important to note that this had never happened before. Before Teotihuacan's arrival, there are no images of Maya warfare. But once they arrive, violence begins. Just north of Tikal is Washaktun. Shortly after the arrival, a monument goes up there proclaiming the Teotihuacan war captain, Fireborn, is the new ruler. In the building behind that monument, a family of women and children were found sacrificed. Many scholars think that that might have been the ruling family who were dispatched by Fireborn. We have the tomb of Yashain at Tikal, and it contains a very important tripod vessel, dramatically named The Arrival of Strangers. The scene painted on it seems exactly that, the meeting between Teotihuacan and Tikal. It shows Teotihuacano warriors walking from a Talud Tablero structure, weapons in hand but down, towards a Maya-style structure. Two men meet at that structure. The Maya figure holds out long Quetzal feathers. The Teotihuacan individual holds out an empty atlatl or spear thrower. The scene is not violent. In fact, it looks like a gift exchange. Propaganda? Probably. But was that how the meeting really went down? Honestly, we're not sure. We can say again, Tikal has no evidence of a Teotihuacan attack, nor of a new trade relationship. All of the green obsidian found at Tikal, to date, would fit into a single shoebox. But in seeming contradiction, Stila 31 shows Yashine dressed as a full Teotihuacan warrior. He wears a Teotihuacan helmet, carries an atlatl spear thrower, and holds a shield with the goggled eyes of Tlaloc in the middle. In this garb, he's what I believe Sheely first termed Tlaloc Venus Warrior. She theorized that in the coming Paten Wars, Team Tikal employed Tlaloc Venus Warfare, which they adopted from Teotihuacan. That put a light bulb over my head. What if... What Teotihuacan was selling was not material, but a philosophy of war. Perhaps it was something like Shaolin, with its warrior priests. A religiously founded validation for war, one that gave its warriors a spiritual mandate and power. That would neatly explain why Teotihuacan neither took over, nor forced a new trade relationship. Ideas are among man's most powerful tools but archaeology can't detect them. So that's my theory. Teotihuacan was spreading a powerful new religion, a philosophy that involved war. And just to be completely honest, I pitched that idea to Sheely, and she thought I was completely wrong. One more thing on Tikal. Just recently, my friend and colleague, Guatemalan archaeologist Edwin Roman, found a new, older section of Tikal with Teotihuacan's fingerprints all over it. In fact, it's a whole compound that's shaped a lot like Teotihuacan's Ciudadela. 
and it dates to a hundred years before the arrival of Yashine and Siakak. He's still digging right now, and I can't wait to see what he finds. The farthest Teotihuacan's influence reached was Copan, the easternmost capital of the classic Maya world. It would seem that through a Tikal-Copan alliance, Teotihuacan installed Copan's first dynastic king, a man named Yashkuk Mo. I know this evidence well because I had the great luck of being part of the team when we found his tomb in 1997. There he was, wearing the goggle eyes of Teotihuacan's Tlaloc, just like he was depicted in the many known Copan portraits of him. Even before we found his tomb, signs of Teotihuacan were everywhere in our excavations. The building that held his tomb was Talud Tablero, though it was changed and covered by the building's next phase. In a niche just above the tomb was a tripod vessel with a painting of a Talud Tablero temple and Tlaloc's goggle eyes peering out from within. And one more thing I saw that I don't think was ever really published. Just outside the building, next to its steps, were buried two Teotihuacan warriors. They both had shell-made goggle eyes and atlatl throwers. But the real kicker was their height. They were both about 5 foot 10. Those guys were not tiny Maya people. They were from central Mexico. In fact, I have a credible theory that Yashkukmo was actually the war captain Fireborn being given his own kingdom in his 60s. But that is a story for another podcast episode. Before I wrap this section on Teotihuacan's expansion, I want to at least mention Alta Vista. All of the rest of Teotihuacan's outposts were previously established capitals, but they seem to have created Alta Vista from scratch. Alta Vista is hundreds of miles north of Teotihuacan, and built at a very special location, right along the Tropic of Cancer. It's actually a few kilometers off the exact line, but it's pretty clear that that was their intention. Teotihuacan established it around 450 CE, probably placing it at the place where the summer solstice and the zenith passage are one and the same. A special Teotihuacan symbol was found associated with Alta Vista, the two circles and pecked cross. Okay, I'll take my last commercial break here. When I return, I'll further explain that pecked cross and circle symbol and how it may have related to Teotihuacan's odd orientation. Archeoed is finally getting some commercial ads these days, but I still like making my own. So here's one for Maya Exploration Center's 2024 tour schedule. I will personally lead four MEC educational travel programs in 2024. Each one of them are going to be about a week long. In March, I'll lead a group through the Olmec world in Mexico. We'll see all of the major sites of their heartland, and I've planned a route through the museum so we can see in person all 17 of the colossal Olmec heads. In July, it's Oaxaca just before their biggest festival of the year, the Gala Getza dances. In September, Peru. 
I'll lead a group starting in Lima, then up to Cusco, through the Sacred Valley, and we'll spend two days in Machu Picchu. Finally, in October, I'll lead a Day of the Dead trip to Paten, Guatemala. We'll cross the lake to see the Three Skulls, but we'll also travel to Tikal, Sebal, and Yashha. These will all be up on the MEC website soon, but if you're interested and want to see the full itineraries now, just contact me via email or the comments and I'll send it right over. Nobody leads a tour like me, and I hope I'll see some of you on the Adventure Trail in 2024. Okay, I'm back. In the last section, I touched upon Teotihuacan's influence on wider Mesoamerica. There's actually a ton more than what I've just mentioned here. I just gave you the highlights. But for this final part of this episode, let's go back to Teotihuacan and see what was happening back home during all their expansion outward. Now, we wouldn't know what we know if not for the work of one of my personal heroes, René Million. As a mapper myself, the two mappers in Mesoamerica that I admire the most are Ian Graham and René Million. I had the honor of meeting Graham, who visited Palenque while I was making my map, but never did get to meet Million before his passing in 2016. Millon's Teotihuacan mapping project went on for more than a decade in the 1960s and 70s. He mapped every inch of an area of 20 square miles with incredible detail and accuracy. In my fairly educated opinion, it was the finest mapping effort ever in Mesoamerica, before or since. He used cutting-edge technology aerial photography to guide his survey teams, and computers to analyze the data. Not only did he map it all, but he collected over one million artifacts to understand its chronology. It's due to his work that we know Teotihuacan made this huge shift to building apartment compounds starting around 250 CE. Million's team documented the city's street grid and over 2,000 apartment compounds. His artifact analysis not only gave us the ages of those compounds, it showed that each of them had workshops specializing in different products. Many were obsidian workshops, but there were also lapidaries, textiles, pottery, and other goods. Collectively, they proved that Teotihuacan was a mercantile powerhouse, not a regal ritual center as previously thought. It also showed that each apartment compound housed 50 to 150 people each. With that, we get our roughly 150,000 people living in Teotihuacan at its height. Milian was also the first to document foreign neighborhoods within Teotihuacan like the Chinatowns of the modern U.S. He found barrios from Veracruz, the Maya world, and Zapotec lands. Even more have been discovered since. And that's important because it proves that, at least in part, commerce was part of their relationship with wider Mesoamerica. But it also brings out a point that has always baffled me about Teotihuacan. Why is it so different from its contemporaries? Everywhere in Mesoamerica has ball courts, but Teotihuacan has none. 
Rubber balls have been found, and they're depicted in murals, but Million found no ball courts. Strange. There are also no hieroglyphic texts. How did the literate Maya and Zapotecs not convince Teotihuacan to do the same? Another is the Mesoamerican calendar. The number 260 seems to pop up numerologically at Teotihuacan, but not one single inscribed date has ever been found. As for their religion, it too looks very different. They seem to worship Tlaloc and Quetzalcoatl and a figure named the Great Goddess, but nowhere else in Mesoamerica at that time matches that same pattern. And finally, last but not least, no other city in Mesoamerica at the time had a gridded street system. How did they come up with that? Mentioning that grid gets me back to the pecked circles and cross symbol. Million found a number of them spreading out around Teotihuacan and hypothesized that they may have been benchmarks used for laying out the city's grid. Before I explain that more, let me describe the symbol a little better. In its common form, it's two circles, one inside the other, with a cross centered within and extending beyond their diameters. It looks like what one sees in a gun scope. The circles and crosses were not solid lines, but made of individually pecked dots, hence the name pecked circle and cross. Million and other researchers since noted that the ones pecked into the ground had an orientation of 15.5 degrees off true north just like the entire city's grid. Being a mapper, Million thought that they may have been used by ancient Teotihuacano surveyors while physically laying out the city's grid. And I see where he's coming from with that. But some of them had total counts of 260 dots, leading to theories that they had some calendrical function instead. Still others think it might have been about solar observations. An interesting fact is that the city's 15.5 degree alignment aligns to a sunrise point that happens twice a year, separated by exactly 260 days. So maybe it was about solar observations and the calendar. But the purpose and or meaning of the pecked circles and cross becomes even further complicated by the fact that they've been found in the faraway cities that Teotihuacan was connected to. I acknowledge that I probably should be talking about other, more important aspects of Teotihuacan right now, but this is a topic that intrigues me. And this is my podcast, and I like this rabbit hole, so you're going down there with me. There are 12 of these circle-cross symbols known within Teotihuacan, and another 17 known outside of it. They're found deep into the Maya world, at Alta Vista, along the Tropic of Cancer, and possibly all the way up into the American Southwest. I say possibly because there's a lot of variation. Their orientations are different, and some of them are carved into walls, not floors. There are also ones that are solid lines, not pecked. Some are only a few inches across, while others are over two meters in diameter. A few on the list are even square. It's really hard to tell where to literally draw the line. 
But I like to look at the big picture in puzzles like this, not get caught up in the minute details. What we have is a symbol that starts in Teotihuacan and spreads out to the places it contacts. Why? Personally, I think it's astronomy, specifically the zenith passage of the sun. If we look for the extents of Teotihuacan's architecture, Talud Tablero, north and south, we find Copan as the farthest south and Alta Vista as the farthest north. Alta Vista is the furthest north one can go and still witness zenith passage. That's the sun passing through the exact center of the sky. That never happens above the line of the tropics. Copan is at 15 degrees latitude, with a large kingdom in a radius around it. At that latitude, the two days of zenith passage are April 30th and August 13th, exactly 260 days apart. That observation is well documented and published. Some researchers believe that the Maya calendar was invented somewhere along that line of latitude. Zenith passage suns carving the 260-day sacred calendar out of the 365-day solar calendar does sound like something the Maya would notice. So we have north and south boundaries of Teotihuacan's expansion, one at the Tropic of Cancer and the other at 15 degrees latitude. Now go back to Teotihuacan and consider the city's orientation, 15.5 degrees east of north. Using that orientation to mark the sunsets produces two dates, April 30th and August 13th. Those are the same dates of Copan's two zenith passages, separated by the same 260 days. Coincidence? Maybe. But it's possible that Teotihuacan's odd orientation is honoring their knowledge of zenith passage at the 15 degrees latitude. They certainly seem to be tracking it, and somehow or another those pecked circles and cross symbols might be part of their research design. Why would they do that? Maybe it was to promote a unified calendar for all of Mesoamerica. Now, to be fair, I should tell you that most scholars believe that Teotihuacan's orientation is about lining up the Avenue of the Dead with the Pyramid of the Moon with the Cerro Gordo directly behind it. David Stewart and Tom Garrison just published a paper proposing that the other end of the Avenue of the Dead lines up on an important cave system. Frankly, it does strengthen the hypothesis that the 15.5 degree orientation is about local geography, not astronomy. Still, I like the Zenith Passage theory better. Okay, my time is really well past and should wrap up, so I'll wrap up Teotihuacan too. When I was a grad student, the story was that Teotihuacan burned around 700 CE and the city was then abandoned. That was nice and neat. Teotihuacan's fall created a power vacuum and all of Mesoamerica fell apart within a century afterwards. And that's what caused the Classic Period collapse all over Mesoamerica and the Terminal Classic began. But today, with better chronological data and a closer look at Teotihuacan, 
We now believe it burned closer to 550 CE. We also know that only the elite compounds around the avenue were burned, not the whole city. So now what we see is what I'll call a rapid change in upper management some 200 years before the classic collapse. Once again, lots of facts, little understanding. We know that Teotihuacan significantly changed the trajectory of Mesoamerican ancient history. How and why? Well, we're still working on that. Until next time, this is Ed signing off. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, recorded, and voiced by me, Ed Barnhart. If you like what you heard, please like, share, comment, and do all that other stuff I'm supposed to ask you to do. And if you really liked it, consider supporting Archeo Ed through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search for Archeo Ed. I'm in there somewhere. I make these podcasts for free, but I'm not opposed to making money. In fact, if you folks could free me from my day job, well, I'd be much obliged. ArcheoEd is my intellectual property, all rights reserved, copyright 2023.